You're listening to a Sunday morning message from Glory Day Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. Thanks for joining in. For more information about Glory Day and next steps you can take with us, check out gdlc.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at GDLC Houston. Hey, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And it's basically part two of last week, so if you want to catch up, gdlc.org, the sermon's there as well. But two different themes going on in chapter four. Last week, Nehemiah had started rebuilding the wall. You know, he got the supplies, he got the the papers, he got everything ready to go, and he got everybody stationed around the wall. And then the attack and the threats of attack and the sneers and joking and ridicule and anger descended upon Nehemiah and the people trying to build that wall. And, And while they tried to push through, the inevitable was about to happen, and discouragement set in. And so I advise you to turn in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, if you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 400. And I want to walk us through just a little bit about chapter 4 to set us up for a key verse of what I believe is in chapter 4. If we talk about discouragement, I want you to think about this. We're, we're all going to deal with it. And it can come in many forms. Think about what it does. It saps our strength. It, it, it robs us of our joy and our hope. We get bitter. We get frustrated. We get cranky. It, it actually can become very toxic. And it, it, it often causes people to either quit jobs, divorce spouses, Abandoned children leave churches or to the extreme end of life. And it can set in for a variety of reasons. I mean, the, a myriad. Here's just a couple examples. Long hours, little reward. Working on a task that seems ridiculous. You're just doing what you're told, and it doesn't make sense, and it's monotonous. Or working on a project that just never ends. You know that kitchen remodel that you did that you were so excited about when you first started, and you got the contractors, and then they didn't start showing up, and then you had a kitchen that wasn't functioning well, and then you had different things happening, and stuff started cost overruns, and... Halfway into the project, you're like, why did we even do this? It's fun at first, and then it just gets old. Or maybe the discouragement sets in when people are upset with you, or your job is not going well, and and you realize, man, you you blew it, or you didn't study hard enough, and you, you... you, you lost the, 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 the GPA you needed to get into the school that you wanted to get into. Or maybe it's people complaining about you. And sometimes, well, very little times they do it to your face. It's oftentimes in subtle ways behind your back, and then you find yourself on social media or someone doing some passive-aggressive things through text messaging. And it just gets old. I want you to know that we're in good company. Because even, even, you know, the heroes of the faith, 
the Bible guys, Old Testament heroes. I mean, I want you to think about this. In Numbers chapter 11, you have to go there, but this is a story of Moses who led the people out of Egyptian captivity. And they're in the desert, and they're, they're trying to get to the promised land. And the people are getting restless. So much so that they overgeneralize uh, that, you know what, why are we out here with all, all we get to eat is manna? And, and, you know, we should go back to Egypt where we had it so good. Dude, y'all were slaves, and y'all were complaining back, oh, we had meat, and we had, oh, it was good, back. whatever. Listen to what Moses said in Numbers chapter 11. I mean, this, this is classic right here. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. Everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, this is Moses talking to the Lord, Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me? I love this. I mean, I just, I hear a, a whining pastor right now. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to a land you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I supposed to get meat to give all these people? They weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry these people alone. This burden is too heavy for me. Great line, verse 15. If you treat me like this, Lord, kill me at once. I think the dude's kind of struggling, don't you think? If I found favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Joshua 7-7. Seven, seven. Joshua has taken the people of Israel into the promised land. I mean, they, ah, they've made it. Seven chapters in, Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. I think he's discouraged also. Elijah, the dude just destroyed 40 prophets of Baal. There was this whole scene where they had an altar. It was like a contest between God and the prophet Baal, or the, the, the God of Baal, the Baal God. And, and, and Elijah's even like taunting the people, like, I'll pour water over my sacrifice of wood, and I'll... It's just like, watch this. The Lord not only burns up his altar coward with water, but also the prophets of Baal. These prophets run. They destroy 400 prophets. And, I mean, it's just like a big day in the Lord's victory. And then Elijah hears that Queen Jezebel is ready to come after him. And this is what he said as he runs away from Jezebel. I mean, just seeing this incredible miracle. 1 Kings 19.4. But he, Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You gotta know what's going on in this text and all these other things. These people are tired. 
physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. And I love when Elijah, the Lord says, take a nap, and then eat, and take another nap, and eat some more. And that was a recipe for him. Sounds pretty good for a Sunday afternoon. I don't think so, but y'all. But even Jesus, in all his humanity, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to the disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And the disciples blew that as well. So we're in good company, by the way. So back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was on this mission to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, and it was turning out to be not an easy thing. Yeah, they completed it in 52 days, but they got to go 40 feet high, they got to go 8 feet deep, and they got to go 2 miles around. And at first, this was an awesome project. And then discouragement set in. Why? Because the attacks, the verbal attacks, started happening to God's people. And Nehemiah saw discouragement was setting in. And Nehemiah's leadership and the wisdom and the servant from the Lord said, you know, you got to take care of this. He didn't ignore it. Because you can't ignore when it gets to that place. I was told it's like ignoring a flat tire. You can pray all you want. You can ask your small group to pray all they want. You can drive all you want but it's never going to get the air back in the tire unless you stop the car, assess the situation, fix the problem, and put air back in the tire, and then move on. So remember last week in chapter 4, the attack started coming. Look at, look at verse, chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Remember when Sambalot heard that they were building the wall, he was very angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. So not only has this leader come, but he's brought his army. What are these feeble Jews doing? I mean, he's just, you know, mm, mm, mm. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? I mean, it's just, just launching the passive-aggressive rhetorical questions. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones of that? And then you throw Tobiah the Ammonite in there, and he said, yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down the stone wall. I mean, they're just, they're, they're just, they're not nice guys. Verse 8, and they plotted, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Verse 11, our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them, and we will kill them and stop the work. So God's people are now threatened. This is hard work. It's overwhelming. And now their security is in question, and the result is discouragement sets in. They're just plain worn out. They've worked a long and hard time for an extended period of time, and they're physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. They're weary and they're worn down. And then to know that an attack is also coming from people not 
very far away, but also within your ranks is a real easy recipe to give in and give up. You know, I spent some time this morning with my Bible study about this text, and just a reminder, that's how the devil works. It gets us when we're at our, our worst, and we're tired, and we're ready to give up, and the attacks start coming. Verse 13. Nehemiah's response. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah understands and assesses the situation. These people are too far apart. They're too disconnected. And so he has to move some people around. And in order to do that, he had to actually stop the work. And he put them together with people that they knew. And I think there's some time of, of, of a change of routine, a change of pace, and offering up a little bit of rest. Verse 14. Here's the theme verse. And I looked up and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. This line right there. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remember the Lord. Key phrase of this chapter. God's grace in the past, his presence in their present, and his promises for their future. You see, what Nehemiah is doing is getting them to take the focus off of themselves and their poor conditions and the opposing army and the threats coming within and said, you got to take your eyes off of them and you got to look upward. He calls to action. He says, remember the Lord. I can't help it but see this section of scripture and, and see the parallel to King David. And so I'd love for you to, to, to go with me uh, to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 22. First Samuel 22 is on page 245. And you can keep your, your note there in, in Nehemiah. I want you to know what's happened in, in young David's life. You know, he's, just, he's defeated Goliath. And ever since then, everything, even growing up, everything he touched was just, it was, he was like the golden child. I mean, he just, everything started coming together. But all those things that he had been working for, they were being gradually stripped away. And he was losing his job in the army, his leader in the army. He lost his income, his security, his wife. He lost his best friend. And now he's running for his life because Saul is after to kill him. And so Saul, I mean, as David is fleeing from Saul, he heads to a town named Gath. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you go back to when David's fighting Goliath, Goliath was from the town of Gath. 
He's literally retreating into the place where he killed their war champion. Right in the heart of Philistine country. And maybe David's hoping that these people had forgotten about this little episode, how he destroyed and killed uh, Goliath, but they hadn't. David was trapped. He acts like he's crazy. King kicks him out, out of the town. David's had enough. Here's where David, he's tired. He's worn out. He doesn't understand he's the king's anointed. He'd been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. And he doesn't understand why Saul is bent on trying to destroy him. Because all David's trying to do is follow the Lord's will and work. And he's lost all those things. And he's lost now his self-respect to try to get away from the people in Gath. So what does he do? In, verse, in chapter 22, verse 1, David enters the cave of discouragement. Listen what he does. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter and sold gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there was with him about 400 men. Now just picture this scene. David is tired, he's ready to give up, and he just wants to find a place to hide. And just wants to be alone and sulk. He finds a place, the cave of discouragement, probably the lowest moment in David's life up to this point. No food, no security, no one to talk to. No promise to cling on to, no hope. And all David wants to do is be alone. <laughs> but then who shows up? His family. Like, y'all, really? I, I don't need you right now. I don't need this drama. And not only that, it gets worse. Guess who else showed up? Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. So not only is he feeling bad, he's got everybody else who's feeling worse coming to him to look to him to, hey, dude, you got to help us out. He's overwhelmed, surrounded by other folks who are even more overwhelmed, and they're looking to David for leadership. David's been beaten down, and there's no way he can do what he's got to do. He sees everybody out around him. He thinks about all that he's got going on, and all that he can do, instead of giving up, is look up. And what he does is he writes Psalm 142. So if you want to turn to Psalm 142. Psalm 142 is on page 523. Because when Nehemiah said, remember the Lord, David gives us an even better detailed description of what that means. He writes this psalm, it's a prayer. If you look underneath the, the title of it, this is a masculine of David when he was in the cave. A prayer. It, it's, it's a form of poetry that's meant to instruct. Prayer written for Dave, by David for us to encourage our faith, to give us hope in the midst of discouragement, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And what I love about this psalm, this isn't just a, a theoretical psalm. This is David who's struggling and down in the dumps, ready to give up, writes this psalm in a time of vulnerability and, and discouragement. 
I believe to let us know that we don't have to be alone in our troubles. Look at verse 1. He says, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. Verse 2, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. You, you see right here, David is in distress. He calls out for help. He spills out his cry. This isn't whining. This is David crying out to God. God, I got nothing left. Verse 3, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. Because in the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. David's struggling. Saul is bent on killing him. This is not supposed to be turned out. He's the anointed one. He slayed the giant. He's the rightful rule of Israel. He's on the fast track to success. And he's in a cave? Look what he says in verse 4. Basis, I feel all alone. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. How is that possible? He's alone, surrounded by 400 people. What do you mean he's alone? Remember, David's not alone, but he feels like he's alone. You ever been surrounded by everybody else and you feel like you're the only one in the room? No one understands, no one cares. All they want is to take more from you. And as a leader, you just feel spent. It's like, what in the world? Moses, Joshua, Elijah, what more can I do? Well, here's what he does. Because this is a pattern of discouragement. It maybe begins with fatigue, turns into frustration, and multiplied by failure, and it results in fear. Verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. What's David saying? God, I can't do this on my own. You've you got to take over. I mean, what David is doing is refocusing, taking his own eyes off a situation, and all of a sudden he remembers the battle is the Lord's. And I wonder if his memory took him back to a battlefield when he faced Goliath. But right now he's got an even bigger giant, it's discouragement. He's ready to give up. And so he prays, God, I, I don't get this right now, but I'm going to fully trust in you. You've got a plan for me. I don't know what it is. I'd love to know it, but I don't right now. This is not what I'm wanting, but I'm going to rest in you and your control. Because you made me a promise that I'm the king's anointed. You, you carried me through with Goliath, and I need your help now with this Goliath. I'm going to invite the band forward. I want you all to hear this. God could have 
kept David out of the cave. But God allowed David to experience the cave so he could set, so he could refocus. I remember way back when I heard a quote, God is not as much interested in making us happy as he is in making us holy. You see, David had to go into that cave to learn radical dependence on God as God was shaping him to be the king that God wanted to use. As I think about this, I've shared this before, you know what, God knows all about caves. You know why? He's been there. And he does his best work in caves. Remember the son of man had it all, he left the heavenly realms, humbled himself, he was born into this world. He was rejected, despised, ridiculed. His friends abandoned him in his greatest time of need. Crowds turned on him, the soldiers beat him. They crucified him on a cross and he died. What started as an incredible journey ended in a miserable failure and where they put his body? In a tomb, in a cave. You see, a cave is where God does his best work. He resurrects dead things. I don't know what kind of cave you're in right now. I don't know what you're dealing with right now. Maybe it's a tough job. Maybe it's a lost job. Maybe it's a failing marriage. Maybe it's a failed marriage. Maybe it's, maybe it's a child who's gone wayward or, or you're constantly fighting with your child. And maybe your dreams for your children aren't growing, are coming to fruition. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe it's kind of apparent the greatest longing of your life is not going to happen. Maybe you're not getting into the college that you want to get into. Maybe you're not getting that job promotion you've been pushing out for, and it's just setting in, and it's just destroying you. If I'm speaking to you this morning, I want you to hear this. Take heart. God is in control. He knows the cave you're in, and he wants you to know you're not alone. And even if you're not in a cave right now, there'll be a day you will be. But just remember, God does some of his best work in a cave. Because I'm reminded that peace is not found in the absence of trouble, but in the presence of God. When you read the rest of chapter 4, you can see how it all played out for Nehemiah. And it all goes back to remember the Lord. I shared this verse with you last week. I didn't give you the reference. I want to close with this. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary, so that you will not lose heart. Remember the Lord. May God grant that to each of us for Jesus' sake. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope God used this time to turn your heart more towards him. 
Be sure to check out Glory Day online at gdlc.org for next steps you can take. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at GDLC Houston as we help more people live life with Jesus every day.